Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai kake mai, I'm Alison Balance and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ. Tonight we are all about green chemistry. Well, green chemistry is a, a type of chemistry that is really a new design feature. It's where we design new processes and products that don't harm the environment. So our aim is to still uh, make things like paints, uh, clothing, mobile phones and so on, but can we make those in a way that will not upset the environment, is basically benign to the environment. That's James Wright. He's director of the Centre for Green Chemical Science at the University of Auckland. We'll find out about James's research later in the show. But first, I'm off to catch up with the Centre's Deputy Director, Cameron Weber, to hear about his work developing new kinds of solvents. Green chemistry as, as a general field is looking to try and both minimise the environmental impact of chemistry and the chemical industry and the use of chemistry to actually try and solve some environmental issues. I think a lot of the emphasis sometimes with green chemistry is about reducing, so reducing waste, reducing hazards, and sort of almost a, a kind of negative focus but with a positive outcome or outlook. And I think there's also an aspect where green chemistry now anyway is starting to pivot a little bit to look at actually, well, can we make positive solutions as well, as well as minimising the impact we have on the environment, but can we actually work towards solving some big environmental challenges using chemical processes and, and new technologies? So two quite different parts to that. So we've, as a society, have come to rely quite heavily on industrial chemical processes, haven't we? Yes, and, and I think often there's a a little bit of a disconnect perhaps between what people perceive as a chemical industry and, and what people are actually in, interacting with on a daily basis. Um, I think not everyone is necessarily aware of all of the processes involved in you know, coming up with your you know, bottle of shampoo or all of the, the plastic products, obviously, that, that people will interact with. But um, even in different coatings for, say, wood and protecting timber products, there's, there's a lot of chemistry involved in a lot of the everyday objects in, that we sort of encounter or interact with. That's uh, right. As soon as we wake up in the morning, we start interacting with things that have been made industrially, basically. Yes. Um, and sometimes it's not so much the actual product itself, but a lot of the precursors to, to the products. So a lot of the fibres that we use in textiles, for example, you know, many of those are synthetic fibres. And so, uh, you know, the final product is weaving the the fibres together or, or, you know, those sorts of aspects, but the actual sort of the chemistry side happens almost sight unseen before then. Uh, and, and often that's also offshore in different countries. So the, the actual impact of that is sometimes not uh, the forefront of people's minds when they're actually looking at buying different products and or interacting with things. So green chemistry as a field, as something that stands apart from just straight industrial chemistry perhaps, how long has that been around for that idea? In the 90s, Paul Anastas, who was working for the Environmental Protection Authority in the United States, 
and John Warner published a, a book, Green Chemistry Theory and Practice, uh, which has sort of become, I guess, the Bible of, of green chemistry almost. Uh, so they outline 12 different principles uh, which green chemistry should be pinned on uh, or uh, developed from and, and tried to increase an awareness of the environmental impact of chemical processes and trying to think a little bit about, well, what are the environmental impacts, first of all, because, of course, if you don't measure something or you don't have an awareness of it, it becomes hard to work out where to start. And also a little bit about actually rethinking the way that we do chemistry. Are there better ways to get to the same outcomes, similar products, or even are there better products than the ones that we currently have? Taking into account things like biodegradability, because of course that's becoming a huge problem for plastics in particular. Thinking about the hazards involved with the process of making different chemicals. And also, uh, can we start moving towards more renewable inputs for processes? So moving away from using crude oil, but also a realization that you know, if we pivot away from using fossil fuels as a fuel source, well, actually, fossil fuels represent a lot of our chemical sources as well. And, and that's often underappreciated, I think. If we stop tomorrow using crude oil and, and gas and coal as energy inputs, we still need to find somewhere to come up with our chemical inputs for a lot of the products that we use. And a lot of the molecules that exist in nature look very different to the molecules that are in crude oil. And so that means that you need to come up with entirely new ways of doing things, which is... You know, becoming a major focus in the area of green chemistry. So how long have you been working in the field? I started my PhD about 11 years ago um, and have since then uh, worked in a few different labs um, across a number of different countries. I'm, I'm originally from Australia. And what I've um, looked at over that time has mainly been a new class of solvents. And so you might not necessarily think about solvents as being a, a green chemistry focus because often everyone's everyday interaction with solvents is, you know, you think about opening a, a paint can or something and you get the, the fumes from the solvents that are present there. But that's actually the link to green chemistry is that a lot of the solvents that are used in chemical processes are um, volatile and so they emit lots of fumes, atmospheric pollution, and they can be hazardous for people that are working with them. They're often flammable as well and so that leads to some of the hazards that we often associate with things going wrong in chemical plants, and many of them are ultimately derived from fossil fuel sources. So what I've been looking at throughout my career so far have mainly been what are called alternative solvents, and they're alternatives with the aim of avoiding some of the um, issues associated with uh, the current solvents, so things that are non-volatile, so they don't, you know, you're not breathing them in when you're working with them, they're not escaping into the atmosphere, they're typically non-flammable, and... We're also trying to make solvents that can actually do more than the conventional solvents can. So with conventional organic solvents, which are the... And this is organic in a chemistry term, which is completely different to organic in an environmental it's context. It's important to clarify that. Um, yeah. Yes. So organic in chemistry just means it's made of carbon, hydrogen and oxygen sometimes, but um, usually carbon and hydrogen. So as opposed to those solvents, which are mainly just used to dissolve up you know, the reactants you want to use for a reaction and let them do their thing, um, we're trying to design solvents that will actually make reactions work better. Um, so we can use lower temperatures. We don't need to heat. That has both energy savings and, of course, hazard reduction because you're not using high temperatures anymore. And we're trying to get solvents that can actually allow 
more than one reaction to happen at the same time. And the advantage of that is that in the chemical industry, if you think about making particularly things like pharmaceuticals, where you have multiple steps to go from the starting materials all the way through to the finished um, product, then usually at the end of each of those steps, what happens is that you need to um, purify the compound that you've got because usually you'll get a little bit of the compound that you're after or hopefully a lot of the compound that you're after, but you'll also pick up a whole bunch of different impurities. So they could be you know, side reactions that have happened There'll be things like solvents because maybe you want a different solvent for the next step, so you need to get rid of the solvent you just used. And things like catalysts, which are used to make reactions go faster, sometimes those get um, incorporated into the final product as well, and you have to separate them to be able to do the next step. So what we're looking at is trying to design new solvents where we can do as many of those steps as possible at one time, which means that you don't need to do all of those purification steps Because in each of those purification steps, often you're using even more solvent and using more energy. um, And so there's a lot of environmental impact associated with that. Tell me a bit more about the solvents. So we've got a couple of examples here. Okay, so um, you've got a flask. We have a a flask with a clear liquid in it. Yeah, it's it's slightly viscous. So it's, you know, if you were a wine connoisseur and you were swilling that round in your glass, you'd say it's got good legs. So it's a bit more viscous than than water. But what we have, have in there is actually a salt. Usually when you think about salt, you're thinking about things that are, you know, like solid. table salt. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, and they melt at really high temperatures. So table salt, sodium chloride, melts at about 800 degrees. So um, not very practical as a, a solvent for doing things at low temperatures. So yes. tell me what a salt is. So from a chemical point of view, a, a salt is something that's made up of ions, which are charged particles. So you have a, a positive charge and a negative charge yep. that make up a salt. And usually when you have a positive and a negative charge together, that means that your ions like to stick together really tightly. And that usually means that you have to go to very high temperatures um, to make them melt. So with these types of solvents, what we do in designing them or in preparing them is that you make the ions fairly large so that they can't stick together as well. And you usually try and make them um, asymmetric. So you, you, you change the shape of the, the ions so that, again, they can't really get too close to each other and they can't um, pack together, which is what usually happens when you're forming a solid, that you have those ions closely packed together. And if you do that appropriately, you can get something which is a liquid at room temperature, even at room temperature in winter. So that allows you to, to have salts that are liquids. And the advantage of having a salt that's a liquid is because you have those really strong interactions between those ions they don't really form a a gas or a vapor very easily and so that means that these are inherently non-volatile so they just like Um, being a liquid they they like being a liquid but they don't really want to be a gas and you also are changing because it's quite unusual to have you know liquids that are made entirely of ions you change the way that they interact with different molecules that are dissolved in them And because you have something that's made up entirely of ions, what people have been looking at these for is a replacement for things like um, electrolytes in batteries. Because, of course, I guess many of your listeners will be familiar with some of the lithium-ion battery issues, some of the fires that have been caused as a result of charging batteries and so on. Um, And that comes about in part because you have, in lithium-ion batteries, you have um, an electrolyte which is made of an organic solvent which is flammable. 
And so when, when they get hot and overheat, then you have the risk that you might be able to ignite. Whereas these are non-flammable, these salts, which are known as ionic liquids, are non-flammable. And so you can overcome some of those, those issues. And because they contain ions, they're inherently conductive. So it means that they can conduct electricity, which is what you want for a battery electrolyte. So better safer batteries. Um, Are we now yeah. allowed to know what's actually in that flask? Uh, yes. So this this flask here we have is now the 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 technical name for it is one octal three methyl imidazolium trifluoromethane sulfonate, which probably Thanks. means absolutely nothing <laughs> to, <laughs> to to you. Does uh, it have a, a an easier name than that? Not really, actually, because a number of them haven't actually hit the point of being commercial products. So. They still tend to be referred to by that scientific name as opposed to having any sort of um, product names, I guess, that might be easier, <laughs> easier to pronounce. Um, okay, so before it was an ionic salt, what are its constituent ingredients? Well, the constituent ingredients in terms of the cation, which is the positively charged part, it's based on what's called an imidazole ring. With the positively charged iron in the, the mixture consists just of carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen. The... Anion, which is the negatively charged part, consists of uh, carbon, sulfur, oxygen, and fluorine. So we have a, a few different elements that are involved, but all of them are relatively abundant, fairly common elements. But you can make them from a whole range of different types of ions, and you can make ionic liquids from a whole range of different elements as well. So people have even made them containing iron, and then they can become magnetic. So you can have liquids that are inherently magnetic. What would you use those for? So what other researchers have looked at doing with those is to help them with separations. So if you have a magnet... You the, pull it out. It does it, yeah, and just basically pull it out. That's sort of one of the main applications people have looked at for them is that it makes it really easy to remove them um, and it means that you can you know, separate your liquids more, almost more cleanly because you can have one that's not moving anywhere so you can just more or less tip it upside down, pour off the rest of the, the liquid that's in the, the flask. And another thing that these um, ionic liquids have turned out to be quite good at is actually dissolving a lot of relatively tricky uh, or difficult to dissolve compounds that are found in what's called lignocellulosic biomass. So that's basically wood and related products. So uh, things like cellulose, which is you know, the most abundant biopolymer on earth, you find it in a whole range of places. So most trees will contain huge amounts of cellulose. And so what chemists have been interested in for, for a while now is trying to use some of those naturally occurring polymers where nature has done the hard work of, of building these really complex molecules with a lot of different functionality in them and using those as starting materials to try and make a whole range of new chemical products. Uh, one of the big challenges is if your starting material is actually really diff difficult to separate from its natural source, then uh, it's not really very practical to, to be able to do that. And one of the things that um, these ionic liquids are very good at is they can actually dissolve quite large amounts of those, those biopolymers, um, and they can do it under much less harsh conditions than you need to go to if you're using even you know, water or organic solvents um, to try and do those extractions. Oh, so yeah. I'm liking the sound of this. So we've got better batteries that aren't that are going to be less likely to burst into flame. We've got better uses for our trees and the constituent ingredients of trees. Yes. So I'm interested in the extraction and, and 
you know, separating new compounds using these solvents, but also interested in what effect they have on the way the chemical reactions happen, because there's different interactions between the ions in these ionic liquids and compared to conventional solvents where you have maybe an organic molecule. And so what we can do is play around with the structure of these ions. And, and there have been estimates that, you know, we're talking about millions of potential ionic liquids that might be able to be made um, using different combinations of ions and understanding what effect they have on the way that reactions happen. But also some of these ionic liquids, if you go right in on the nanoscale, so you know, think about zooming right into an individual ion, they actually sort of form two different regions. So you can sometimes have a region that's sort of almost oil-like. It's sort of a non-polar hydrocarbon region in the liquid and then you have your your sort of positively charged really polar you know much more sort of hydrophilic so wanting to interact with water and those types of parts within the same liquid um, and that's really unusual to have that and to have those those regions that are actually quite well defined so you can think of it as being a little bit like if you have a detergent for example and you add water to that you have regions that like grease and oil um, and you have regions that like water and with these liquids, you don't need to add the water to get it to happen because a lot of detergents and a lot of soaps, obviously, they, they tend to be solid um, in their pure form. And so not really useful as solvents. You need to add water, dissolve them up, whereas these inherently have that sort of structure within something that's already a liquid at room temperature. And so that can potentially change the way that reactions happen because you can think about having your different reactants in different parts of the liquid. So they might be seeing different molecules and they'd be able to do those sorts of reactions at the same time in what looks like the same liquid. Um, but if you zoom right in at the nanoscale, those reactions are happening in different places. So that's where I was talking earlier about trying to do multiple step reactions at the same time, you know, hopefully between things that are otherwise incompatible so that we don't need to do that purification intermediate step, we can avoid some of the, the solvent use and some of the environmental impact of that. So we, there's a couple of other alternative solvents that we've... Oh, cool. We've, we've got a couple of other things from. on the table. Um, so this may not look like a solvent, so I have some white crystals in a vial here. We also now have a vial of, you know, another one of these viscous mm, liquids. That's more viscous than um, the other one. Yes. And the liquid is actually made from mixing two different solids together. So you don't need to add water. So you don't need to add water. There's no, no water in this. So two solids but, to make a liquid. But you mix two solids to make a liquid. And so these are known as deputectic solvents. Just so say that again. De deputectic Deputectic, okay. So what a eutectic mixture is, is if you mix two components together, a eutectic mixture has a melting point, which is, which is lower than either of the two things that you've mixed in. So if you have you know, a solid that melts... A, 100 degrees, another solid that melts at 150 degrees and it forms a eutectic, then the melting point of that will be below 100 degrees. And there's a range of these, these mixtures and that these solvents are known as deep eutectic solvents because the, the reduction in melting point is big, basically, um, hence the deep. And so what you can do is take, this is choline chloride, in this file here, and you can take urea. Which I is, think of in terms of fertilizer. Yes, and if you mix two 
equivalence of urea to one equivalent of this choline chloride, you get something that looks like this, which, which is, is our a, liquid. A clear liquid. A viscous liquid. Choline chloride melts at 300 degrees. Urea melts at 120 degrees, around that anyway. But the mixture together can form a liquid at room temperature. That's amazing. And so <laughs> what this approach to making new solvents allows you to do is you can take things that are you know, non-volatile, non-hazardous, can be made from renewable sources because, I mean, even though most of our urea comes from the Harbour-Bosch process, which, of course... It's very energy intensive. It's very energy intensive, and depending on where you get the hydrogen for that from, maybe not renewable, depending on, on the input. Certainly, most of the hydrogen that's currently used is not coming from renewable sources, but in principle, could be made renewably. And choline chloride is actually an additive that's used in um, chicken feed, and amongst other things. So while both may be not necessarily made from renewable sources at the moment, they could potentially be, but both are inherently non-hazardous. Uh, and they're non-volatile, so they're not emitting fumes or, or causing any of the problems that we have with other solvents. And you just have to mix these two non-hazardous, safe-to-use solids together, and you can generate a liquid which you can now use as a solvent. So what might you use that solvent for? So what these are being looked at is for a range of applications that are actually quite similar to some of the ionic liquid processes. So this basically just gives you the option of looking at an even wider range. If the, the original a million wasn't enough, um, that, then you can look at an even wider range of possibilities in terms of solvents that can be used for similar types of things. So coming up for extracting products from natural sources, using them for doing new types of chemistry, so new types of chemical reactions. Uh, probably slightly less interest in using them as battery electrolytes because usually you have more components than just the salt, and so they tend to be a little bit more reactive. So less interest in that application, but for a range of different extractions and for, for chemical processes. And people have been looking at using these to uh, purify metals as well. Um, because some of these are quite effective at dissolving uh, a range of different metal salts and for using them to refine those metals uh, into the pure forms. The advantage that these have as well is because you can take two non-hazardous, biodegradable, etc. Sol solids, these can often be quite a lot cheaper as well than the ionic liquids. And there's a whole lot of interest in, in developing what are called natural deputectic solvents, where they're coming from nature, you just basically taking compounds that are found abundantly in nature but are solids, so you would never normally use them as a solvent, mixing them together to make uh, new liquids and then trying to see what those do. Uh, you know, it's one of those things of until you actually build up that knowledge base and understanding of what the effect of using these are, then you don't know what the possibilities could potentially be. So that's where there's a lot of exciting science that's happening around that sort of area. You've shown me two really interesting things. What else have you got going on in your lab? So uh, I have a, a research student at the moment who's also working on uh, what are called switchable solvents. Oh, switchable. It like, um, makes me think of an electronic circuit. So along those lines, so you can change the way that they behave by doing something to them. So there's a range of different somethings that can be used in that, that context. Um, and one of the, the methods that we've been looking at, which has been developed um, in Canada originally, has been solvents that when you add carbon dioxide to them, they change from being non-polar solvents to becoming polar liquids. So in extreme cases, and we have a, a couple of these that we've been looking into, 
you can take something that is completely immiscible with water, meaning that, meaning that it won't mix with water. You get two phases, and then you add carbon dioxide, and all of a sudden they mix together. And so what that allows you to do is instead of having to try and come up with a way of removing the solvent from you know, the compounds that you have, you add CO2, and you know, if you have something that's oily, it will actually just separate itself from the liquid once you've added CO2, you just pour off the liquid layer um, that you want to collect. And then to switch it back, all you have to do is pass you know, nitrogen or, or some sort of inert gas. And, and then there's no waste products that are generated from that because you just get the CO2 back that you originally had put in to do the switch. So it's quite circular. So it is quite circular. And so there's the possibilities there in terms of building it into things like the circular economy, trying to, to do extractions separating off the products and then reusing and recycling the entire solvent to kind of go back again um, and repeat that process. So we have yeah a lot of interest in trying to see what kinds of things that those, those types of solvents can be useful for. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou ao horihori, ki te reo erirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance and this is Our Changing World on RNZ National. In our exploration of green chemistry, we've heard of some interesting solvent possibilities. Now let's go back to James, who works in a different field of green chemistry. My area of chemistry involves or is involved around something called catalysis. And it's a very chemical concept perhaps, but basically what it is is that there are certain materials that you can prepare, make, that if you add them to a chemical reaction, they actually don't form part of the chemical reaction, but they speed the reaction up enormously. And they usually end up allowing you to produce much purer products. So catalysts are very, very good because they reduce the energy component for a reaction. You need less energy input to make something, and you usually end up with uh, purer products. There are fewer byproducts in a reaction. There are some reactions which actually don't occur really at all noticeably without a catalyst. There are things that have recently won the Nobel Prize in chemistry, catalysts which will take organic molecules and stitch them together, a reaction that doesn't occur normally uh, only occurs in the presence of a, of a catalyst. And what are these catalysts made from? They can be made from all sorts of things. My background is, is in inorganic chemistry, coordination chemistry, organometallic chemistry. So I tend to focus on catalysts that are metal-based, but they don't have to be metal-based. There are organic catalysts as well. In other words, molecules that don't have metals in them as, as a major component. And of course, if you want a good example of a catalyst, your body uh, has lots of natural catalysts in it already, and, and we call these enzymes. So these are the things that that speed up the sort of reactions. Digestion, for example, where you want to break down the, the, the proteins that you eat. If you didn't have a catalyst, it would take you about seven years to maybe break down half of your meal. We do it in, in, in a few hours with these wonderful catalysts we naturally have in, in our bodies. So the catalyst that you're designing, is it a design process where you go to the lab and you're tweaking and you're trying different things? Yes, yeah, so that's exactly right. We use a range of approaches. 
But one approach is that you look to nature, you see what nature does, and you maybe can work from that and make a simpler version. So in other words, uh, we call this bio-inspired design. So you, you see what nature has spent the last, whatever, billion years um, designing and finding out what works, uh, and then you see if you can build on that to make much simpler versions. One of the problems with natural uh, catalysts, enzymes, they tend to be very complex, and so synthesizing those and using them outside of a, their natural environment is not always easy. You, you can do it, but it's, it's not always easy. The metal-based catalysts uh, we, we want to zero in on, or are zeroing in on, are iron-based, and the, the particular reaction that we're looking at catalyzing is what we call an oxidation reaction. So this is effectively adding oxygen to molecules to in one sense, burn them. This is what happens when you burn something. You, you take oxygen from the atmosphere. If it's an organic compound, you convert it to carbon dioxide and water. Now, that, of course, as you know, if you're burning, requires high temperature and, and heat and so on. But it turns out you can do this burning process where you combine with oxygen at room temperature if you have the right catalysts. And that's really the sort of thing that we're looking at. We're looking at designing, developing these catalysts that are based on iron, which will allow us to oxidize, in our case, toxic compounds. We, we want to use these catalysts to get rid of pollutants that you find in, for example, wastewater. And we, we're looking to do that through this oxidative process that occurs at room temperature and pressure. So it could be something that wastewater from a factory might clean up? Or Precisely. municipal wastewater? What kind of wastewater? All, all, of, all of that wastewater. So, so the process, um, because we're using an oxidation, any organic compound is, is fair game, if you like. We can convert that to carbon dioxide and water. So if it's industrial waste or municipal waste, it, it doesn't matter. We, we are targeting or can target both of those. Uh, we cannot target simple inorganic things like nitrate because that they aren't oxidizable uh, and sort of metal ions. So that, that aside, pretty much everything else... So these kinds of catalysts, have they been developed and are already in use in places around the world? We actually work in collaboration with a scientist in America who's actually a New Zealander. Terry Collins is his name. And uh, he was the first person who developed these particular oxidation catalysts. We, we have helped in the subsequent refinement and development of these, and we're still looking at that. And our approach also has been in the way in which you can use these catalysts. I emphasize that they're, they're iron-based, and, and the reason for that is eventually these catalysts, of course, decompose, and you don't want to have some toxic element uh, that's, that's going to be causing contamination. So iron, of course, is ubiquitous. It's, it's everywhere, and, and in the sort of form of rust, it's relatively benign and, and, and not harmful. And, in fact, the amounts of these 
iron catalysts we have to use are so small, uh, once they've decomposed, the iron they introduce to the environment is, is actually below the natural level that's there anyway. So, so that's a very important point, and one of the key aspects or features of green chemistry is that, of course, we, we want to be very, very conscious of what happens to the product once its lifetime is over. So part of this full life cycle analysis that's very important to, to carry out with all of these new things you might be introducing, what happens at the end? Can you recycle it? If you can't recycle it, is it going to cause a problem? The concentrations at which the catalysts are used are incredibly small. So they're very, very active catalysts. We're talking about nanomolar. That's 10 to the power of 9, right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's billionth of a, of a mole per litre. So how do these catalysts get used? I didn't answer you, but you did ask, are they commercially available and used already? Uh, The answer is almost. (laughs) In the US, there's one company that has been using these catalysts actually for mould control, and there's another company that's that's using them for commercial laundry application. So they're they're very good at bleaching, so you can um, stop dye transfer between um, clothes. You can wash, for example, your, your, your red T-shirt with your white underwear and you don't end up with pink underwear because the dye that goes into solution uh, gets bleached before it can precipitate out onto your white clothing. So this is rather good because it means you can wash with less water. You can mix your colours with your whites, you know, the, the normal thing that uh, my wife tells me. We, not, we, to we, <laughs> not to do. Not to do, right. Get that red T-shirt so, out of the sheets. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So they are two small, at the moment, small applications. But, but the big potential application, which is just waiting in the wings, which, which is being pushed at the moment, is to use these catalysts in cleaning up wastewater. So this is municipal waste largely. And, and the cleaning up part is really the final stage of, of the water. After it's gone through its normal purification and in inverted commas process, often there is still traces of these rather worrying compounds that the treatment systems don't remove. And these are called generically compounds of emerging concern. And there's whole books been written recently about these. But these are the sorts of compounds that, that people are becoming increasingly worried about because it's been shown a number of these can um, influence growth and development uh, at incredibly low levels. So they're endocrine disruptors. What they do is take the place or they mimic hormones that might occur naturally. And there are some... Uh, aquatic species that are, that are very, very sensitive uh, to these compounds, fish, amphibians, and so on. And some uh, evidence indicates that we should probably be a bit worried about maybe some fetal development in humans as well with some of these contaminants. So there's a big push, especially in Europe at the moment, to reduce the level of these uh, in the effluent water from treatment plants. We're we're talking about very, very small concentrations, but 
at those small concentrations, they, they have a pronounced effect on some species. So where do you come in into this picture? Yeah, so what we've been doing, as well as trying to develop um, some new versions of the catalysts, we've actually been um, developing a, a system where we can separate the catalyst and the hydrogen peroxide oxidant from the bulk water that's being purified. So at the moment, the, the, the catalyst, as they've been developed, they are water-soluble. You would dissolve incredibly small amounts in water, and then you'd dose that water with hydrogen peroxide, and you would then oxidize all of your organic material, especially the, the worrisome organic compounds present. So that works, and, and the economics look like it's very similar, if not slightly better, than using ozone, uh, and that's why we're quite excited about potential applications there. But we could make it better if we didn't have to dose all of the water with hydrogen peroxide or indeed the catalyst because a large amount of that hydrogen peroxide isn't actually utilised. It does eventually decompose to oxygen water so that's not really an issue but, but, but it costs money of course to put that in. So we're developing a system or trying to develop a system where we can have a special film that looks a little bit like a sheet of paper but is actually a special porous membrane that separates our hydrogen peroxide solution from the bulk water that we're purifying. And on one side of that membrane we have our hydrogen peroxide solution. We actually anchor the catalyst on the actual film itself and we then have the water that we want to purify flowing over the other side. And what happens then is there's no bulk mixing of the hydrogen peroxide with the bulk water, but what happens, the hydrogen peroxide diffuses into this porous film. There it activates the catalyst to a very highly oxidizing species. That is what then reacts with um, the contaminants, the organic contaminants, which we designed to be attracted towards the film. They get oxidized and released back from the film. Uh, and in that way, we can carry out the oxidation without this bulk mixing. So we can use way, way, way less hydrogen peroxide uh, than you would in, in standard mixing uh, situation. So as you might imagine, designing this film is, is not easy. But progress is being made, and we have some very, very promising uh, leads so far. So, so that's what we're doing. Here's Cameron again. So you're a designer, really. You're designing new compounds. I think a lot of chemists are designers. I think one of the, the things with the field is, you know, I, I think often science doesn't get the credit in terms of the, the creative side of it. You know, a lot of chemistry is molecular design. You're, you're trying to, you know, develop new molecules. You're trying to understand, you know, ways of getting there. And so you're sort of build, building things up, putting things together. There's just perhaps slightly different rules when you're dealing with molecules than when you're sort of physically building something on the large scale. Then what happens? Industrial chemists out there who are working in particular processes, can they then look across at the work you've done and go, oh, I think that might have relevance to what we need at this point in time? So what we're looking at is trying to understand what um, the effect of using these types of solvents uh, is on different types of processes and, and there's a lot of work going you know internationally as well um, on trying to build that sort of knowledge base about what sorts of areas that these um, solvents will be useful for 
And we have a good understanding of that, then trying to find applications where these could be, you know, a significant benefit and trying to, you know, work with industry partners and, you know, people who are interested in, in taking it, you know, from the lab to the real world, as it were. Because one of the things about green chemistry, I think it's an area that's particularly industry focused and was actually industry that started the field, which is quite unusual for a field of academic research, that it was more industry led than um, academic led, at least in the early stages, because they could see that there was this this big problem with um, hazards and with the environmental impact, and they wanted to find ways of coming up with solutions. Because, of course, you know, something that has been developed in an, in an academic lab and then never is actually used has zero environmental benefit whatsoever. So if we want to actually come up with solutions to environmental problems, we need to have someone there to, to take it from the lab through to actually becoming a product or becoming part of a process. Thanks, Cameron. That was Cameron Weber. We also heard from James Wright, and they are both in the Centre for Green Chemical Science at the University of Auckland. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ first aired on the 20th of August, 2020. You can listen again and find photos at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. We have a free weekly email newsletter. You can find the subscription link at the bottom of the webpage. That website again, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. While you're down there, you'll find various Our Changing World podcast collections, including Voices from Antarctica, Voice of the Iceberg, and Voice of the Kākāpō. If you'd like to get in touch or follow along, we're on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Stay safe and catch you next time. Kia pai tōra. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.